The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 29th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist with Osito Anevu filling in for Mike Pesca. It's been a very long and depressing August for just about anyone following the news. Obviously, Hurricane Harvey, as I'll speak to Slate's Henry Gabar about in just a bit, has freighted the month even further with tragedy. August, though, has been relatively light on further developments in the interminable Russia scandal. When we last left off earlier this month, it seemed like special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation was heating up, as was speculation that Trump might fire Mueller should he finally lose his patience with the whole thing. Now, yesterday, a new story broke. The New York Times reported that in 2015, Trump associate Felix Sater told Trump lawyer Michael Cohen that he was working to have Russian President Vladimir Putin push through a deal for a Trump Tower in Moscow, which Sater argued could help Trump's campaign by demonstrating Trump's negotiating skills. Now, this is an important story that brings to light some new shadiness in Trump world's connections to Russia, and I continue to wish the Russia reporters and Mueller Godspeed in their efforts to get to the bottom of all this. But I have to admit that I read this story with incredible dread, dread at the prospect of weeks or months more of nonstop chatter and speculation about Russia, Russia's interference in the election last year, and the at times cartoonishly sketchy details we've learned about Paul Manafort and the rest of Trump's rogues gallery have never ranked terribly highly for me on the list of things that disturbed me about Trump's election or his presidency thus far. His use of rhetoric that has emboldened people like the man who killed Heather Heyer, the prospect of him upending immigrant families by ending DACA perhaps as soon as today, the prospect of tens of millions of Americans losing health insurance, and about a dozen other things strike me as worse. And one can say that the Democrats and members of the hashtag resistance are capable of thinking about multiple issues at the same time. I think this is true. But there is something terribly exhausting and futile feeling about letting Russia suck up any substantial amount of oxygen within the discourse. It probably has something to do with the fact that Republicans will never impeach Trump. Short of Mueller finding emails between the man himself and Vlad, Trump's probably golden, unless his approval rating amongst Republican voters absolutely crashes. An endgame where Trump is forced out, as far as I'm concerned, remains hard to see. There are many who disagree, of course, including the loyal readers of Louise Mensch and Claude Taylor, two disturbingly prominent Russia conspiracy theorists who, as The Guardian reported yesterday, have been duped repeatedly by a hoaxer claiming to have inside information about non-existent criminal proceedings against Trump and others in his circle. Now, Mensch is famous for taking Russia speculation to surreal lows. She's claimed, for instance, that Bernie Sanders is an agent of Vladimir Putin and that Russia was secretly behind the 2014 protests in Ferguson after the shooting of Michael Brown. She nevertheless has over a quarter of a million Twitter followers and even wrote a piece about Russian hacking for the New York Times earlier this year, although defenders of that decision would likely say that happened before she went off the deep end. Now, I'm sure I've only got a moment or two before the marshal of the Supreme Court, a key investigator in the Russia scandal, according to Mensch, knocks on the studio door and spirits me away to be interrogated for treason. Before that happens, I just urge this. Let's try to keep our eye on the ball here. Trump is probably not an agent of Vladimir Putin. He is unquestionably an agent of the Republican Party. If he goes, Pence will take his place and work to implement an almost indistinguishable policy agenda. If the Democratic Party wants to mount an effective resistance to not just Trump, but the GOP, they'll have to advance a vision for the country that can win them back the presidency and the ground they've lost in the 26 states where the Republican Party now has complete control of government. The Russia scandal can't do this. It's complicated, it's exhausting, it's become boring, and it has no material impact on the lives of anyone. It frankly has yet to materially impact the life of Donald Trump. Maybe that changes soon. I'm not holding my breath. There's far too much else to think about. Today I'm going to spiel about yet another terrible David Brooks column, and I've got an interview with Slate's Henry Gabar about Hurricane Harvey. 
This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about the Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few, Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general, and he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The rain is still falling in Houston as tens of thousands of displaced residents wait anxiously for Hurricane Harvey to finally spin its way out of the Gulf. The damage done to the nation's fourth largest city and towns all over southeast Texas since Harvey made landfall last week has been unprecedented, with large areas receiving over 40 inches of rain through today. Henry Grabar has been writing for Slate about Hurricane Harvey all weekend and Monday, and he joins us today on The Gist. Hello. Hi, Sita. So one of the things that has been dramatic to watch this weekend has been the filling of Buffalo Bayou. Now, this is ordinarily a pretty innocuous-looking creek that runs through a lot of the city. It's now this huge, immense uh, river flowing through the city center. And you can see that like entire trees have been engulfed to the point where you can see the, the tops of them poking over the water. Um, and obviously, hundreds of homes and businesses have been inundated around this area. You wrote a bit about how the bayou fits into the city's water infrastructure. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So Harris County, in which Houston is located, is a very large, flat piece of prairie land. It's about 35 to 45 feet in most of the city uh, above sea level. So uh, the water is not coming from the ocean. But this does mean that a sophisticated drainage system is required to get all this water out of Harris County when it rains. So the county has about 2,500 miles of channels, which include both uh, natural bayous, which are these little creeks, which is why Houston is called the Bayou City, and also uh, canals and, and sort of more man-made conduits that help take water out. Uh, Buffalo Bayou, which runs through the center of Houston, is the final passage for a lot of the water that comes out of the western part of Houston. So it's built into this little park that runs through downtown, and actually that park is designed to accommodate the flooding in the bayou, so some flooding is normal, but everyone is saying that what they're seeing now has, has never happened before. So Houston is a, is a city of bayous, as you said, um, and there are a lot of different waterways and infrastructure built to divert water, as you just described. Um, one of the things that I think you mentioned in your piece, though, from, I think, Sundays that the city grew beyond what the initial water infrastructure was. So there have been a lot of 
housing units, businesses built in an area where they didn't necessarily expect it to flood, but now we're seeing a huge influx of water. Can you sort of talk about how that ended up happening and, and what uh, people within that flood fa- uh, floodplain could now face? Sure. So th- there's two things going on here. The first is that Houston has obviously been the fastest growing city in America over the last 30 years. Um, added hundreds and hundreds of thousands of new restaurant, uh, residents, not just to uh, Houston proper, but especially to the unincorporated and uh, suburban cities in Harris County to the west and to the north. The second is that because these cities out in western Harris County have been hungry for development, they have basically allowed developers to put down homes everywhere. And that includes in areas that are vulnerable to flooding and includes areas that are adjacent to the bayous. So, Henry, there are these two main reservoirs, I think, within the city of Houston. You can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. But uh, there were reports, I think, early today or late last night that one of them, addicts, had uh, the water level rise over the spillway, which is not something they had anticipated. In fact, they'd been working to relieve addicts and Barker by letting some of that water flow into the bayou and intentionally flooding some of that area in a, in a controlled way. Uh, should we be concerned about what's happening with these dams? Yeah, so I think there's been a lot of concern in Houston about the viability of those dams. They were built in the 1940s after downtown Houston was devastated by floods in 1929 and 1935. And the idea was to create these two basins that would plug up all this excess water coming from western Harris County and keep it there until it could be released more slowly down through Buffalo Bayou, down through downtown Houston. What we've seen in the last two days is untold levels of water, which means that the Army Corps has had to um, fill up the reservoirs all the way, which is flooding the houses behind them upstream. And at the same time, uh, the water is now going over the emergency spillways at the dam and around the edges uh, for the first time in, in those dams' history. So demographically, do you know who is living in the immediate path of this water along the bayou, along the spillways? Is that a particular section of the city by income level or other characteristics? Like who, who is most at risk here? Yeah, I think the, the instinct is to, is to think that the low-lying areas that are most at risk of flooding tend to be low-income areas as well. Uh, I think in Houston it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, as I said, there's 2,500 miles of channels. One thing I'll say is that there are at least eight federally subsidized affordable housing complexes within the 100-year floodplain. Um, Many of them flooded in 2016. Many of them are flooding again. The federal government continues to provide rental assistance there because they say, you know, affordable housing is hard to find, and it's better that we have these people living somewhere than living nowhere. But I think that after this flooding event, which is going to be the third in three years, People are going to start seriously reevaluating whether these are the places they want to be. And I don't just mean that's, I don't think that's just going to be the case with these poor neighborhoods. I think that's going to happen across the board. So, about two weeks ago, I think maybe two weeks ago exactly, President Trump eliminated an Obama rule mandating that agencies take into account climate change related flood risks uh, when approving projects. Obviously, there's been some conversation, uh, and climate scientists are always kind of worried about this conversation about the extent to which what we're seeing with Harvey is connected to climate change. Um, but the know-nothing attitude that, that Trump has evinced about climate change 
also extends, I think, a bit to some of the Harris County officials. You quoted in one of your pieces, I think, the head of the flood management who said that they hadn't been making plans to study the impact of climate change on that water infrastructure. Can you talk a little bit about that? One thing is that they're not talking about climate change as it pertains to increased rates of flooding, increased likelihood of flooding. The second is that they're not talking about the impact of all this development on flooding. And they haven't really seriously forced new development or existing development to adapt. With respect to adapting infrastructure, Trump rescinding the Obama-era rule means that when all this stuff is rebuilt, it will be rebuilt closer to the ground and with less, uh, sort of less foresight for future increases in flooding uh, as it would have been uh, had the rule not been rescinded. So one of the, the pieces of reporting that's gotten a lot of attention that sort of really caught my eye as Harvey was, was moving towards Texas was this ProPublica piece from last year where they talk about the threat of a hurricane in the region specifically to the Houston Ship Channel and all of the petrochemical refineries and facilities in that immediate area. Now, since Harvey actually made landfall, we haven't heard that much about damage to those areas, partially because Harvey made landfall west of Houston. But at the same time, you know, yesterday in East Houston, we were hearing reports of certain residents smelling chemicals in the air. And it'll be hard, I guess, to, to understand in full what, where that's coming from or what the impact on chemical facilities has been until some of the water recedes. But what can you tell us about that part of the city's infrastructure and those industries and the kinds of environmental damage or concerns we should be thinking about as, as uh, the recovery begins? Well, of course, Houston is, is the nation's oil and gas capital. I think it's almost certain that Harvey is a stronger storm than it would have been because of climate change. Of course, no one can say for sure, but climate change does make uh, this type of extreme rainfall event more likely and more common. We do know that the ExxonMobil oil refinery there on the Houston Ship Channel, which is the nation's second largest refinery, has been shut down. So gas prices will probably rise as a result of that. I have no idea right now what the permanent damage looks like, but it's certain that there will be at least a momentarily shutdown in the sort of industry that defines the Houston Ship Channel. In terms of environmental fallout, again, we just don't know. There's just so much. As you've seen, the scale of the disaster is ongoing. It continues to rain. The rivers continue to rise. So the extent of the damage really isn't clear yet. So talk a little bit about the upcoming legislative debate in Congress over relief. One thing you wrote yesterday is that insurance coverage is going to be lacking in a lot of these areas because uh, some of this has happened pretty far inland. And so when they actually come back to Congress and start talking about relief, uh, and you're already seeing some of this, Ted Cruz, John Cornyn, senators from Texas, are going to be key figures given that they opposed uh, relief package for Sandy back in 2013, but now presumably have, have changed their tune on on the sensibility of, of federal aid going to going to Texas. Yeah, so Senator John Cornyn of Texas would reject the idea that he voted against Sandy relief. He would say he voted for a different package. The one that finally passed was criticized by some Republicans for having pork barrel spending that went to areas that weren't affected by the storm. That said, many Republicans, especially from the Northeast, did vote for it. Representative Peter King, who's a Republican from Long Island, he he sort of tweeted at Ted Cruz and said, "Don't worry, Ted Cruz, we won't we won't abandon Texas the way you abandoned New York," um, which suggests that 
um, a relief package to Texas uh, will probably go through Congress and and may in fact be the largest infrastructure bill of the year, despite the president's uh, assurance that he will pass his own package. I wanted to ask you also about this question of evacuation that's come up this weekend. Uh, people were criticizing Houston's mayor for not ordering a mandatory evacuation. He responded and other people responded by saying, well, look, this is the fourth largest city in the country. It's no small thing to order a large-scale evacuation. So what is your read on on the decision that was made there? Yeah, I think the mayor probably made the right call here. I mean, the evacuation that Houston did for Hurricane Rita in 2005, dozens of people died during that evacuation. Thousands and thousands more were stuck on the very freeways that are now entirely underwater. So as chaotic as the operation that we've seen in the last few days has been, I think it's nothing compared to what might have happened had all those people been on the roads which tend to flood first. The other thing to say is that in these types of events, people always are more likely to die in their cars. So I think the thinking is that we don't know where the flooding is going to be, and if we can keep people in their houses, we can at least make these areas sort of disperse the scale of the the disaster. If everyone is on one freeway and that freeway floods, um, like we've seen in the photos of Houston now, um, I think it would have been a much greater disaster. All right, that was Henry Gabar, who's been wonderful covering Harvey with us all weekend and yesterday. And Henry, thanks for all you've done covering this huge event and for being with us today on The Gist. Okay, thanks, guys. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. David Brooks has been a columnist at the New York Times for almost 15 years, and over the course of that time, he's been a source of constant consternation for critics of just about all political persuasions. We've taken a few whacks at him here at Slate over the years. Search his name on our webpage, and you'll find a modest treasury of our writers cataloging his various misdeeds as a writer and a thinker. I believe our most recent piece of Brooks' critique was a post I wrote not too long ago about his infamous Sopra column, the one where, as you may remember, he argued that certain cultural markers, like one's knowledge of Italian deli meats or one's ability to tolerate David Brooks' columns, could be more important to our understanding of inequality than structural factors like residential segregation or access to quality education. Now, I self-imposed a moratorium on writing about Brooks after that, but he's come out with a column today remarkable enough for me to break it. It's called How Trump Breaks the GOP, and its central assertion is that until the middle of the Bush administration, the records of the Republican Party and the conservative movement on race were just about fine. Only recently, he claims, did the party succumb to the kind of white identity politics that enabled Trump's rise. Between 1984 and 2003, Brooks writes, I worked at National Review, The Washington Times, The Wall Street Journal editorial page, and The Weekly Standard. Most of my friends were Republicans. 
In that time, I never heard blatantly racist comments at dinner parties, and there are probably fewer than a dozen times I heard some veiled comment that could have suggested racism. To be honest, I heard more racial condescension in progressive circles than in conservative ones. That was all Brooks's writing. Now, this is a remarkable statement for a number of reasons, not the least of which is it's suggesting that David Brooks isn't generally inclined to read the publications that employ him. This is something I'd long suspected, but I suppose now we have proof. Because had Brooks read publications like National Review and all the rest of conservative media in the 1980s and the 1990s, he would have found, among other things, rather eloquent defenses of apartheid, immigration restrictionism, and scaremongering about minorities on government assistance and black criminality. Now, these issues were not presented in quite the way that Fox News and our president are given to rendering them. But the substantive ideological groundwork for the modern Republican Party had been in place within the conservative elite and the kinds of Republican political impulses that led to the Willie Horton ads of 1988 for several decades. As Governor Michael Dukakis vetoed mandatory sentences for drug dealers, he vetoed the death penalty. His revolving door prison policy gave weekend furloughs to first-degree murderers not eligible for parole. While out, many committed other crimes like kidnapping and rape, and many are still at large. Earlier this year, I wrote about a National Review story that was run in 1992 urging the curbing of illegal immigration into the United States for cultural reasons, centered around the idea that certain populations are unassimilable. The author of that 14,000-word National Review cover story was Peter Brimlow, who now runs one of the most prominent white nationalist sites on the web, VDARE and who gave seed money to alt-right leader Richard Spencer for the launch of his own online magazine, Alternative Right. Now, there's been very little recognition within the conservative movement about any of this. Anti-black racism, the recurses to Trump's stance on immigration, the alt-right, and all the rest. What we get instead are columns like Brooks's, which insist that because the movement's leaders and Republican politicians aren't using the N-word freely or burning crosses, that the mainstream right's record on race is clean. But racism has manifested itself in American society in ways that extend far beyond personal animus or the kind of dramatic rancor and violence we saw in Charlottesville. It has manifested itself through policy, perhaps most insidiously, through rhetoric that insists that the disproportionately non-white people our society has left behind are where they are, not because we have morally and practically failed them, but because they've failed themselves. There's reams of social science research that proves this isn't true. This has nevertheless been one of the core messages of the conservative movement. Brooks could have read that line of thought in 1984. He can read it anywhere in conservative media now if he chooses to. But that would require the kind of reckoning with facts and figures Brooks has spent his career studiously avoiding. Today, my colleague Jamel Bowie tweeted an excerpt about Brooks from a book by the British historian Tony Jute that I'll finish with here. Raymond Aron famously criticized the generation of Sartrean intellectuals who knew nothing about the things they were talking about, but at least they did, after all, no other stuff. Men like Brooks know, literally, nothing. That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson and Daniel Schrader produced The Gist, Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and thanks to Gist host Mike Pesca, who's back next Tuesday, and demands that I leave you with this. Oomperoo, deeperoo, duperoo, and thanks for listening. I'm Osita Wanevu.